Hello and welcome back to the Yeshua Judaism series of podcasts. This will be podcast number five, that is Antichrist 1, part 5. And again, Antichrist 1 is preliminary discussion which will introduce Antichrist 2 in which we get into the meat of defining and explaining Antichrist. So, we left off, and I mentioned in part four, how we were going to discuss the issue of punctuation in Matthew chapter 24, which we have focused on throughout this Antichrist 1 series of discussions. And so here we're going to jump into that. I've mentioned it, I've touched upon it, and hinted at the punctuation issue repeatedly throughout parts 1 through 4. Now we're going to actually get into it. So, this is Antichrist 1, Part 5, and I'm hoping I'm going to push through. This may be one of the longer parts because I want to try to finish it, but it may, it may go longer than others. But I, I'm going to go ahead and just finish it out with this Part 5. So, Antichrist 1, Part 5, how legitimate punctuation reveals who is misleading you. So, now let us return to the punctuation issue mentioned previously in our conversation. You may ask, so what? What does it matter where the punctuation is placed in Matthew chapter 24? Well, first, remember from earlier in our discussion, I made the following statement. The punctuation, which determines the sentence structure and often even the meaning of a passage is not actually present in the Greek manuscripts from which the New Testament is produced. Did you hear that? The Greek manuscripts do not have punctuation. The punctuation is placed there by those who translate the Bible. It is a best guess at rendering the passages in a way suited to what the translators feel is the original intent of the verse. And of course, translators themselves, whether they intend to or not, have their own bias. And that undoubtedly influences how they will punctuate the sentences, as well as how they will actually translate various Greek words of the New Testament. So, Depending upon where punctuation is placed, a verse can have a very different meaning. Let us take a look at a few of the previously quoted passages as an example. As we do this, please pay particular attention to the fact that the punctuation, not the actual words in the verses, forces the understanding that most Christians have with respect to the verses shown from the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And I will go through those verses just a little bit later. This is a case where punctuation is of extreme importance if one wishes to understand what the passages actually teach. As I learned more about how terribly incorrect Christian teachings are, I returned to those verses from Matthew chapter 24, and saw them in an entirely different and much more logical and understandable way. 
I will demonstrate by slightly altering the punctuation within the verses that are in your English, English Version Bible to present another legitimate rendering. I will do so without changing a single word in the verse. In other words, I'm not going to change the words. I will just voice it in a way that you will hear a slight difference in how it is punctuated. But the words I will not touch. Instead, I will delicately alter the best guess of biased New Testament translators to produce a rendering that is every bit as legitimate as theirs. Every bit is legitimate. They can't argue. And if they try to argue, basically they're just simply displaying their bias. Now, in the actual written material on the TorMessiah.org website, the material in Antichrist 1, the first article, Antichrist Part 1, I have underlined the location of this change. That is, the change in where I'll be slightly altering the punctuation. And you'll see this on pages 21 and following. So I will first quote the passages with the punctuation as it appears in most Bibles. Then I will follow it with the slightly altered yet equally legitimate punctuation. And as I said, I will not change a single word of the passage. Please pay attention to the punctuation. All right, so first... I'm going to be reading the verses from Matthew's Gospel, and I'll be reading from Matthew chapter 24, verses 4 and 5, and I'll be reading from the NET, or New English Translation Bible. So, and I'll I'll be reading here with the original punctuation, and I will emphasize the punctuation as I read, so so you, the listener, will be able to to, uh, notice where the punctuation is actually changing. So I'm going to first read it with the punctuation as it is seen in your Bibles, and then I will follow it with the slightly altered punctuation. And once again, I'm going to voice it and emphasize it relative to what the punctuation actually is. So first, again, Matthew chapter 24, verses 4 and 5, with the punctuation as it is in the Bible, all right? Yeshua answered them, Watch out that no one misleads you, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will mislead many. Now, with this slightly altered punctuation, which is just as legitimate. Again, reading Matthew 24, verses 4 and 5. Yeshua answered them, Watch out that no one misleads you, For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will mislead many. Notice the difference? Very quickly, again, I'll read the the punctuation as it appears from the biased translators, and then the slightly altered, yet every bit as legitimate punctuation. I'll read it very quickly. Matthew 24, 4 and 5. Yeshua answered them, Watch out that no one misleads you. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ and they will mislead many. And then the altered punctuation that is every bit as legitimate. Yeshua answered them, Watch out that no one misleads you, for many will come in my name, saying I am the Christ, and they will mislead many. You may want to go back and listen to that. You'll notice that there is a big difference there. Next, 
I'll read from Mark's gospel, and I'll do the same thing. First, I'll read it as it is presented in your Bible. Then I'll read it with a slightly altered punctuation. And I'll be reading from Mark chapter 13, verses 5 and 6. Yeshua began to say to them, Watch out that no one misleads you. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will mislead many. Next, with a slightly altered punctuation. Yeshua began to say to them, Watch out that no one misleads you. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will mislead many. Notice the difference? It actually may help if you have the PDF, and I'm reading from page 22 of Antichrist Part 1 that you can find on the TorahMessiah.org website. It would probably help if you had that and you were looking at this, but I'm trying to voice it in such a way that you can notice the difference. So finally, I will finish with Luke's Gospel. Once again, I'll read first with the punctuation as it is in your Bible, and then with a slightly altered punctuation. I'm reading from Luke chapter 21, verse 8. He said, that is Yeshua, Watch out that you are not misled, for many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is near. Do not follow them. Now with a slightly altered punctuation. He said, Watch out that you are not misled, for many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and that the time is near. Do not follow them. Once again, notice the difference? Now, with those subtle changes, primarily the removal of the quotes that enclose the phrases, I am the Christ and I am he, by simply removing those quotes, which are put there by the translators, they're not in the original Greek, people, by simply removing the quotes, the verses take on a dramatic and distinctly different meaning. And the actual warning for us from Yeshua conflicts with what is universally taught within Christianity. And all I did was remove the quotes that the translators put there, that biased translators placed there. They were not in the original Greek. That is all I did. Okay? So, you can see, if you go back and listen, that from each of those Gospels, the bias pushes a person into thinking that people are going to show up and exclaim, I am the Christ, or I am he. But if you simply remove those quotes, the warning changes completely to where Yeshua is simply warning that there will be people coming that rightly claim he is Messiah, and they will mislead many. Once again, reading from Matthew 24, 5, I'll just read from Matthew 24, verses 4 and 5, just as an example. Again, here's what they want you to believe. Listen to what, what I say. Watch out that no one misleads you, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will mislead many. Notice that? The implication is that people will show up claiming to be Christ. However, simply remove the quotes, and here's what he says. Watch out that no one misleads you, for many will come in my name, saying, 
I am the Christ, and they will mislead many. Now you notice he's simply saying, beware of people who correctly claim he is Messiah. However, will still mislead people. Because simply claiming he is Messiah doesn't mean they're teaching truth. Because there are many other things to teach beyond simply identifying him as Messiah. Okay? So, when the few-many problem discussed in earlier parts is considered, along with the equally legitimate possible punctuation that that I just read, it becomes rather obvious regarding whom Yeshua is actually warning us to watch out for so that we will not be misled. Now it is easy to see that the warning is for us to beware of those who rightly claim that he, Yeshua, is Messiah, because despite that truth, they nevertheless mislead people. When the few-many understanding is correct, it becomes rather obvious, and I discuss the few-many issue, I believe, in part two, perhaps part three. So, The warning is not because they are wrong to identify him as anointed by God. Instead, the warning from Yeshua is because even though they are correct regarding that issue, they will nevertheless mislead many people by their many other teachings, most notably their anti-Torah teachings and the idolatrous worship of a God in the flesh. All their misleading teachings are done in his name, that is, in the name of Messiah, or generally, actually, in the false name, Jesus. I have a a separate series of podcasts in which I ask the question, does Christianity truly follow Christ? And I prove conclusively that the answer to that question is no. And Yeshua's warning here within this discussion, on which I elaborate within that other separate discussion, shows it proves that those about whom he warns us would not be claiming to be him, but would be coming in his name, that is, in the name of Christ. In other words, Messiah is not warning us about people who would claim to be Christ or claim to be Messiah, but he's warning us about those who, who claim rightly that he is Messiah, yet still mislead people. They would even come in his name, which Christianity does. They come in the name of Christ, actually his false name, Jesus, but nevertheless, they come in his name and yet still mislead people. Furthermore, they would be promoting false teachings and heresies, that is, those about whom he warns us. They would be promoting false teachings and heresies in his name. Indeed, That is precisely what traditional Christianity has done for over 1,700 years. For over 1,700 years, that is exactly what Christianity has been doing. And those who have come to an actual knowledge of the truth clearly recognize this as being the case. Yeshua specifically warns us to not follow them, as stated in Luke, where he says, do not follow them. 
He directly warns us against following those who come in His name yet promote false teachings such as the foundational anti-Torah teachings of Christianity, teachings which directly oppose the pro-Torah message and example of Yeshua Himself. This is somewhat supported by the fact that later in verses 23 and 24 of that same chapter in Matthew, as well as later within the Gospel of Mark, Yeshua directly warns about false messiahs. Is he warning again within the same conversation as Christianity teaches? Why would he need to repeat himself? Or is he actually warning about actual false messiahs for the first time? in his conversation, in only those later verses. It all depends upon the punctuation used in verses 5, 6, and 8 of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, respectively. The punctuation is what determines the meaning in those verses. Obviously, no one can say with absolute certainty which punctuation is correct. Anyone claiming otherwise is a liar or simply ignorant. However, the fact that there have not been many false messiahs, combined with the facts regarding Christianity's actions over the last 1,700 years, very strongly support that the alternate punctuation I suggested is more accurate and is what Yeshua the Messiah intended by his statements. History proves quite directly and consistently that Christianity has come in his name spreading terror and error until relatively recently, that is with the terror, and promoting numerous extremely incorrect teachings. It is truly amazing, it really is, how precisely Yeshua's warnings in Matthew 24, Mark 13, and Luke 21 fit the conditions that have prevailed within Christianity's infamously brutal and error-ridden history. It is a history of which most Christians are entirely ignorant and apathetic, particularly the terror and brutality of Christianity. Their apathy or often even embrace of Christianity's history, makes them passive supporters of such brutality and terror, which is one reason many in the world despise Christians, despite the fact today's Christians are entirely innocent of the atrocities that have been inflicted by Christianity. Okay, now I want to get into a separate issue here, and that is how Christianity fails to understand the very meaning of Messiah. Christianity has a, they really have, it's really a big failure in Christianity. They don't really know what Messiah is. The leaders of Christianity actually aren't teaching correctly what Messiah means. Now, though it is a topic more properly addressed within a separate discussion, Yeshua could have also been warning us to avoid those who claim that he was at that time Messiah ben David, or Christ son of David, since before his death and resurrection, that is something he was not. Having ancestry that goes through King David 
is only one of the requirements for Messiah ben David. Yeshua meets that requirement. But the state of the world that must exist during the Messianic reign of Messiah ben David most certainly did not happen and has not happened. It is partly for that reason, matter of fact, that is a very strong reason why many Jews reject Yeshua as having been, as Christianity teaches, Messiah ben David. Now, quickly, before you assume that I do not accept Yeshua as Messiah ben David, continue listening. Don't jump to conclusions here, people. I very much do believe he is and also believe the New Testament teaches it. However, the New Testament still does not teach that at that specific time in history, he fulfilled the role of Messiah ben David. It is actually referring to a future scenario. So continue listening in order to understand. Messiah ben David or Christ, son of David, is a term which represents a definition of one of the messiahs hinted at within the Tanakh, or Older Testament. It is also the understanding of Messiah as commonly established within Judaism. Messiah ben David will be a king, an unequaled Torah sage. It is no accident that Messiah ben David's important role as an unprecedented and unparalleled Torah teacher is never mentioned within Christianity. However, that is one of the roles Messiah ben David will have. Messiah ben David will be a Torah teacher, an unequaled Torah teacher of extreme wisdom beyond any that the world has ever seen. And of course, Christianity never mentions that. That is because erroneous Christianity is fundamentally anti-Torah. Messiah ben David will also subdue all the enemies of Israel, and bring peace to the world during a period known as one or all of the following. It's sometimes called the Messianic Age, or the Millennial Reign, or the Sabbath Millennium, or the Thousand-Year Reign, etc. But it really all is the same thing. A detailed discussion of Messiah David is not an objective of this article. The primary point to understand is that Messiah ben David represents the second of two messiahs revealed in Torah whose actions will end the suffering for God's people and bring lasting world peace, neither of which has occurred. Therefore, it is an obvious common sense fact of history that Yeshua definitely was not Messiah ben David either during his life or after his death and resurrection 2,000 years ago. However, he did fit many characteristics which identify him as the first of two messiahs, that is, Messiah ben Yosef, or Messiah son of Joseph. Messiah ben Yosef is an enigmatic character sometimes spoken of within Judaism's oral Torah, and few people, Jew or Gentile, are aware of this mysterious figure. I will very briefly discuss this a bit later within our discussion. There are other actions Messiah ben David will bring to pass, but world peace and the defeat of Israel's enemies are among the most important. Those crucial and necessary signs which identify Messiah ben David have not yet been evidenced. Consequently, Yeshua, at that time, 
was not Messiah ben David. However, that does not mean he is not Messiah or that he will not be in the future Messiah ben David. Christianity rightly promotes that Yeshua was and is Christ or Messiah. However, they generally promote him as Christ, Son of God, and it is rare to hear a Christian label him as Christ, Son of David, that is, Messiah ben David. Worse still, Christianity and counterfeit messianism go far beyond the bounds of reason and the Bible by promoting him at times to be Christ, God the Son, despite the fact that the term God the Son is nowhere, nowhere, found in the pages of the Bible. So, basically, here's the situation. Most Christians are very uninformed of the biblical concept of Messiah. And that unfamiliarity is largely due to the focus upon Messiah or Christ as being God in the flesh. The legitimate Messiah understanding gets whitewashed, overshadowed, distorted, and suppressed by the God-in-the-flesh-Christ error Christianity promotes. The Christian concept of Messiah is an adaptation and repackaging of pagan Roman mythology instead of biblical truth. Now, Christians are victims of, okay, they're not, it's not their fault, I'll be honest, It's the Christian leaders. Christians are simply not being correctly educated regarding the concept of Messiah. And that is is just a tragic situation. It truly is. But as I come across Christians throughout my life, and if, if, if the discussion gets into discussing Christ or Messiah, I very quickly know within generally one or two sentences that this poor person, this Christian, just literally doesn't even know what Messiah is. Most Christians honestly don't even know. Most Christian leaders don't know what Messiah really is. I will not elaborate at this time. Suffice it to say that Christianity has done a woefully poor job of educating Christians on the proper definition and characteristics of Messiah. Okay, so what about Yeshua as Messiah ben David? So now I'll discuss Yeshua's role as Messiah ben David and how it is for the future. Yeshua's role and activities as Messiah ben David are actually reserved for the future. When he was here 2,000 years ago, he was not Messiah ben David because the divine plan of the eternal God did not decree that to occur then, even though in a future sense he could be and was labeled as such within the New Testament. It must be understood that the Hebraic or Judaic mindset recognizes that in the plan of God, the past, present, and future are seen as one grand stage of existence. The eternal God operates outside the boundaries of time and space and sees the beginning, the end, and all there is between simultaneously. He sees infinity, a domain that he alone occupies, and he sees it as an instant and is not restricted by it or anything else. 
the eternal creator God, who creates the limits, cannot himself be limited. Therefore, just because the New Testament may at times attribute to Yeshua the title of Messiah and David, that does not mean it was literally applicable at that time in history. On the issue of physical and literal presence in creation's time of Messiah ben David, past, present, or future, Judaism, frankly, has been correct, and Christianity has been incorrect. Yeshua knew who he was, okay? He knew the acts of Messiah ben David were reserved for a specific time in the future that he admitted was unknown to him. In Matthew chapter 24, verse 36, Mark chapter 13, verse 32, and Acts chapter 1, verse 7, he admits that it's, it's unknown to him. By the way, that lack of knowledge by Yeshua is yet more proof that he was not, is not, and never will be the eternal creator God. Acts chapter 1, verses 6 and 7 are particularly revealing. And I'll be reading from Acts chapter 1, again, verses 6 and 7. I'll be reading from the NET Bible. So when they had gathered together, they began to ask him. Now this is after Yeshua's resurrection, obviously. So when they gathered together, they began to ask him, Lord, is this the time when you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? He told them, You are not permitted to know the times or periods that the Father has set by His own authority. Note how the disciples specifically asked, Is this the time? when Yeshua was going to restore the kingdom to Israel. They, at that point, wrongly assumed, remember, they had not yet been given the Ruach HaKodesh, or the Holy Spirit. They did not yet understand. All right? That was to come later in Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, or Shavuot. So, at that point, they wrongly assumed that Yeshua's role as Messiah ben David was for that period in history. Remember, like I said, they had not yet been given the Holy Spirit. That occurred later. Now, restoring the kingdom is a primary act that Messiah ben David will accomplish. For certain, it is one of the primary acts he will accomplish. Yeshua's answer settled the issue with his simple reply, He replied with an implicit and yet obvious no. Now, he, of course, didn't say no, but it was obvious the answer was no. That's not why I'm here. That's not going to happen yet. And he then continued with his reference to times and periods that are set only by the Eternal Father. In so doing, he removed any doubt regarding the fact that he was not, at that time, tasked with restoring the kingdom and therefore was not, at that time, Messiah ben David. Much damage has been done 
particularly with regard to Jewish acceptance of Yeshua, by those Christians who advance the error that he was versus will be Messiah ben David. Unlike most Christians, those Jews know he did not fulfill hardly any of the necessary prophecies that point to his being Messiah ben David. And that is a major reason for their continual rejection of him. So when Christians are constantly advancing the misunderstanding that Yeshua was Messiah ben David, they don't understand all they're doing when they do that is driving Jews away because Jews know what Messiah ben David is supposed to do and they realize Yeshua did not do that 2,000 years ago. So Christians, you're actually not helping your cause, okay? When you're trying to present Yeshua or Jesus, if you prefer, as Messiah ben David, you're not helping your cause when you try to promote that he's Messiah ben David to a Jew who understands the Bible, okay? You're, you're not helping your cause. You're actually pushing them away because they're not ignorant of Messiah ben David as, unfortunately, most Christians are because of their ignorance of the concept of Messiah. And again, that's because they're not properly taught by their Christian leaders because their Christian leaders are ignorant. Okay, now I will discuss the two Messiahs concept and Yeshua's potential to be both. Yeah, you heard me right. Two Messiahs. Few people realize that within the teachings of Judaism, there are actually two separate and distinct messiahs. It is a teaching of which even many Jews are unaware. Generally speaking, these two messiahs are assumed to be two different individuals. However, even Judaism cannot entirely discount the possibility that the two messiahs may actually be one messiah or one individual who will accomplish the task of both messiahs. The rabbis of Judaism will undoubtedly deny this. Nevertheless, even they must and do admit that the details regarding Messiah, particularly Messiah ben Joseph, are speculative and clouded within mysteries that even they do not understand. The idea that the same individual could fulfill the roles of both Messiah ben David and Messiah ben Joseph is even more logical if Judaism's concept of reincarnation, or Gilgul, is applied, in which it is taught that a soul can return to fulfill necessary tasks that were not fulfilled in a previous life, or multiple lives. It is commonly taught that Elijah will, re- will literally return Therefore, that is within Judaism. Therefore, why is it considered impossible that Messiah could do the same? Likewise, there are those within Judaism who will identify various past Torah sages as reincarnations of previous individuals. For instance, I have seen how some believe that Moshe Kamlazato, an illustrious and supremely gifted sage within Judaism, was a reincarnation of Moses through whom the Eternal One gave Torah to mankind at Mount Sinai. Therefore, the idea that Yeshua Messiah ben Joseph could return as Yeshua Messiah ben David 
is very definitely not outside the realm of possibility, despite what the rabbis of Akiva Judaism may disingenuously claim. I will not delve into the details of each of the two Messiah concepts within this discussion, except to say that any rabbi or Judaic leader who categorically rejects that both Messiahs could be the same person or at least the same soul placed within two separate bodies is dishonest and is applying a a double standard to their teachings and is blinded by unreasonable and often elitist bias. Briefly, the two messiahs about whom Judaism teaches are, first, Messiah ben Joseph, or Christ the son of Joseph. He is primarily a suffering servant, does that sound familiar? Who will accomplish a purification, does that sound familiar? And regather the Israelites. Notice how Yeshua said he was sent to the lost sheep of the tribes of Israel? He is considered the more lofty and powerful of the two messiahs. That's Messiah ben Joseph. Again, Messiah ben Joseph or Messiah ben Yosef is a suffering servant who will accomplish a purification and regather the Israelites. He is considered the more powerful of the two messiahs. Second, Messiah ben David, or Christ son of David. He is primarily a human savior king who will bring about world peace and spread the knowledge of God or Torah throughout the entire world during the time that he reigns reigns as king of all the earth. Actually, the spreading of Torah throughout all the earth will be his primary function during the Sabbath millennium of his reign as part of his task of elevating the holiness of all mankind during that period of time. Though Akiva Judaism will not admit it, Yeshua was and did fulfill much of what is to be accomplished by the mysterious Messiah ben Yosef and the atoning work of a completed tzaddik or perfectly righteous person as taught from the deeper understandings of Torah. Frankly, most Jews do not even know of those deeper understandings. The more I study Messiah ben Yosef, the more convinced I become that Yeshua was indeed Messiah ben Yosef, Messiah son of Joseph. I touch upon the atonement through a completed tzaddik or righteous person in a separate discussion, and I will have that in podcast form. Messiah ben Yosef is the suffering servant figure discussed within the deeper wisdom of Torah literature. Therefore, Yeshua may have been warning of the false teachings within Christianity that label him to have been Messiah ben David at that time, which was not the time for his fulfillment of those prophecies, the prophecies relevant to Messiah ben David. That was not the time for him to fulfill those prophecies. And I read from the book of Acts where he basically told the disciples that very thing. All right. So all of Yeshua's warnings that we've discussed were proven to be accurate. It is truly astounding how the persecutions Yeshua warns us warns us of 
in the previously referenced areas of the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke are largely what Christianity has heaped upon the Jewish people, who have resisted the severely flawed teachings that Yeshua is God in the flesh, that Torah is abolished, and that Yeshua at that time was Messiah ben David. Yeshua may very well have been warning his Jewish followers of persecution by future Christians relative to the time in which he was speaking. Those Christians he may have been warning about would, and did, and do, divorce themselves from the actual Torah-based truths. They come in his name, spreading numerous monstrous errors. They terrorize countless Jews and others who cling to Torah and the one true God. Is it simply a coincidence that Yeshua's prophetic warning is exactly what happened and continues to happen to this very day? No, it is not a coincidence, since there are no coincidences in God's perfect plan. Christians would argue that Yeshua's statements were a prophecy of a brief period in history which saw terrible persecution of Christians. that's, That's what some Christian leaders would argue. Those persecutions ended, more or less, with Emperor Constantine, and soon thereafter, in the annals of history, Christianity became the persecutor, not the persecuted. Furthermore, Christians were from that point forward very different in faith and practice than were the earliest followers of Yeshua, the original followers of Yeshua. So here's another short history lesson that you will probably not hear in church. The persecution of Christians reached its its peak in the very early centuries when Christianity was not simply very different than today in form and practice, but was indeed a sect of Judaism. What is ignored or generally unknown to most Christians is that many of those early Christians who had to endure atrocities were primarily followers of Yeshua who revered Torah either as fully Torah-observant Jews and non-Jews, possibly as Noahide law-observing non-Jews. They often also worshipped in the synagogues, and in general, they had many similarities to Judaism with regard to their fundamental beliefs. Noahides are God-fearing Gentiles, who adhere to the seven laws of Noah, the alleged seven laws of Noah, given after the flood, and who also have deep reverence for Torah, since Noahide laws, they include much that is in Torah. Actually, today, slightly deviating. Most people don't realize this. If you read the material within Judaism, you will see that even Judaism teaches that less than 300 of the alleged 613 mitzvah or commandments within the Torah are even possible to be kept today. Most of the legalities of Judaism, matter of fact, the overwhelming number of legal, pedantic nonsense within Judaism is rabbinic decrees. They're rabbinic decrees, durabanans, takanot, gezerot, minhag. They're not actually in the Bible they were dictated by the rabbis, okay? 
That's what most of the things in Judaism that people view and consider to be legalistic and burdensome, that's what most of them are. They're rabbinic dictates. They're not the actual Torah, okay? That's just a little side note. People need to understand that. That's also what generally, when the New Testament appears to be against the law, talks about being you know, various burdens of the law and traditions, that's what they're referring to. They're not referring to the true Torah. They're referring to the tyrannical authoritarian dictates that the rabbis instituted and which have multiplied exponentially since, the, since even they were discussed within the New Testament. Okay? Now, I personally view Noahides as Torah students in training and that the Noahide condition should be temporary. That is, people should go, if someone's in a, practicing Noahide laws, they should have an objective to embrace the full Torah. With true lovers of God intending to study and pursue the fullness of Torah. In other words, they should worship with, with those who pursue the fullness of Torah. Now, one reason Judaism will teach, Akiva Judaism, Rabbinic Judaism, they teach that oh, if you're a Gentile, you can be Noahides. They it's like, here's what they do. It's like they're living in the Torah house. They're living in the house of Torah. But they try to keep Gentiles in the backyard. They don't want them in the Torah house. Here, you, y'all, you stay in the backyard and just play with your Noahide laws. You don't deserve to come in here with us. The elitism of Torah, or excuse me, of rabbinic Judaism, I discuss in the the subject or in, in the audios in which I contrast Yeshua Judaism with Akiva Judaism. That is Yeshua Judaism with what's known today as Rabbinic Judaism. It's an extremely elitist religion, and I strongly suggest that you listen to those audios, to those podcasts, in which I define Yeshua Judaism and show the contrast of it versus Rabbinic Judaism. Okay? You'll understand more when you listen to that. All right? And this, the elitism issue, this, this is a major difference I have with Akiva Judaism or Rabbinic Judaism. It is the, they, they reject the impartiality of God doctrine. They totally reject it. Akiva Judaism very much believes God is partial to the Jew and doesn't really care that much about non-Jews. And go listen to that material for more information. The God is impartial, anti-elitism, less burdensome, and more inclusive teachings of Yeshua Judaism were and still are the primary and true reasons why the commonly defined religion of Judaism rejects Yeshua and the much more loving expression of God's Torah that he brought down from heaven. They were the primary points of contention. That is, the elitism, etc., etc. Those were the primary points of contention between the original followers of Yeshua and Akiva Judaism's elitist-minded leaders. At that time, before Akiva Judaism was even formed, it was the Pharisees who were the forerunners of Akiva Judaism. They're the ones who actually created the new religion of Akiva Judaism or, or Rabbinic Judaism following the destruction of the Second Temple. Any sincere and knowledgeable rabbi or practitioner 
of Judaism who says otherwise is being totally disingenuous, or to put it bluntly, they're lying. In the New Testament, Noahides are referred to as those who fear God or are labeled as God-fearing people. You'll see that in the New Testament. And an example is Cornelius in Acts chapter 10, verses 1 and 2. He was a God-fearer, a man who feared God. That means he was basically probably a Noahide attending synagogues. Because back then, remember, the Pharisees ran the synagogues. The Pharisees taught that Noahides, that you have to go through a conversion process to be a Jew. And those who had yet to do that, they were Noahides. Cornelius was one of those. He was a Noahide, a God-fearer. Noahides would often worship with or study with Jews since they relied upon the synagogue to hear Torah and what from Torah is necessary for Gentiles who do not fully embrace all Torah elements. This arrangement is demonstrated within the New Testament and directly described in James or Yaakov's decision recorded in the book of Acts in chapter 15, verse 20 which presents an abbreviated, possibly, possibly an abbreviated version of the Noahide laws and was undoubtedly the intent of his statement. And I'll be reading from that. This is Acts chapter 15, verses 19 and 21, now or through 21. Now, there's some debate whether or not this is actually referring to Noahide laws or not. The point is, this was something to get them in the door, to get the Gentiles in the door, into the door of fellowship with those who were at the synagogues and embracing Torah. It was basically to open the door for them to come in, all right? Again, Acts chapter 15, verses 19 through 21. Therefore, I conclude that we should not cause extra difficulty for those among the Gentiles who are turning to God, but that we should write them a letter telling them to abstain from things defiled by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled, and from blood. For Moses has had those who proclaim him in every town from ancient times, because he is read aloud in the synagogues every Sabbath. Notice that. In other words, they're going to learn Torah when they get into the synagogues. The the Intent was that once they get there and they're embraced, they're, they're, they come into the fellowship of the followers of Yeshua, they will learn more Torah. The primary differences at that time were the Jewish and Noahide believers' acceptance of Yeshua as Messiah, but not as God in the flesh, versus regular Judaism's rejection of him, and the greater openness to non-Jews that the faith of and in Yeshua proclaimed. Basically, the followers of Yeshua taught God is truly impartial. Judaism, that is Akiva Judaism, then and now, definitely does not teach that or believe that. It was those differences that ultimately led to the original followers of Yeshua leaving the synagogues, although they were largely driven out of the synagogues, as discussed earlier by the more pedantic and elitist adherents to Judaism who rejected Yeshua and who later became even more pedantic, elitist, and enslaved by man-made Durbanans, rabbinic decrees not found in Scripture. The first and second century, and by the way, pedantic, if you don't know what that means, that basically means persnickety, overly scrupulous, that's pedantic. 
The first and second century conflicts between Rome and Israel, that is, Israel being defined as Jews and anyone else who revered Torah, was when much of the Christian persecution occurred, since at that time legitimate Christians and devout Jews within Judaism were hardly distinguishable due to the similarities in their beliefs and worship practices. They had almost identical faith systems. Therefore, the original Christians were persecuted along with the Jews. Of course, since there were a significant number of Torah-observant Jews numbered among the early Christians, Jewish persecution included Jewish Christians and was for that reason Christian persecution. Let me state that again. Persecution of the Jews in those early centuries was persecution of the original followers of Yeshua, since their beliefs were almost identical. Likewise, persecution of the original followers of Yeshua, the original Christians, was persecution of the Jews for the very same reason. Hatred of Jews or hatred of Torah, primarily from the Romans at that time, applied equally to both groups. So we once again encounter a falsity of Christianity. In this case, the fabrication involves the falsifying of history. It is a purposeful deceit, with the goal being to benefit from the propagandizing of early Christian persecution. This was and is accomplished by referencing the legitimate horrors inflicted upon authentic Christians, followers of Yeshua, along with their Jewish brethren, but with one major alteration, an alteration with far-reaching consequences. The very term Christian was changed by the propagandist. It was stolen and totally redefined to align with what the falsifiers wished Christians of later centuries to believe. The genuine Christians who were persecuted and whose characteristics were redefined by the propagandist followed a faith system that is very different than today's version of Christianity and of the Christian historians or propagandists who use such persecution of early Christians to sell their falsehoods. The ones who had been the persecutors seized the identity of Christian and then completely changed the Christian faith. It was an unscrupulous identity theft whereby the tormentors assumed the identity of the ones whom they had tormented. Rome eradicated most of the original true Christians along with their teachers, that is, the original Torah-observant, non-idolatrous followers of Yeshua the Messiah. Rome eradicated most of them along with all their Torah-knowledgeable, non-idolatrous leaders. Rome also suppressed any who were left, prohibited the faith and practices of that legitimate faith, stole the identity of Christianity and fashioned that counterfeit faith 
to mirror its own image, the image of pagan Rome. Christianity, as it has existed since the 4th century, is essentially a fraud which severely distorts the person and mission of Yeshua the Messiah as well as the New Testament and indeed the entire Bible. As I will discuss, it is a situation where a lie has been told for so long, so strongly, and so widely that it has become the truth in the minds of most people. And to ensure that the lie remains the truth in the minds of such people, those who could prove it to be a lie were continually eliminated or in some other way prevented from exposing the lie. Until recently. The time has come for the revelation of truth and the exposing of traditional Christianity's deceit and error. So that's an end of that brief history lesson. Okay, so a brief conclusion. All right, so after all this discussions in Antichrist 1, parts 1 through here, we're finishing up in part 5. So even if Yeshua's warning was to Christians, it still applies to the pro-Torah mindset that ultimately became the focus of Christianity's tyranny. For certain, the only people Yeshua was addressing in those passages were Torah-observant Jews, his disciples. No Gentiles were present to hear him. As stated earlier, the facts of history, and I'm talking about Matthew chapter 24 and the parallel passages. He was addressing the disciples there. There were no Gentiles there to hear him, all right? As stated earlier, the facts of history definitely prove Yeshua's prophecy in those passages to be what has occurred. Why? For the simple reason that if the longevity of Christianity's terror spree, 1,000 to 1,500 years, and the level of inhuman, decadent brutality is considered, Christianity holds the undisputed title of the most ruthless, unapologetic, and bloodthirsty terrorist organization in the history of human existence. No other group even comes close, and any Christian who thinks otherwise, is either oblivious to Christianity's history or is a liar. It saddens and frustrates me to see so many Christians flippantly ignore or refuse to admit that they are members of what history proves to be the most abominable terror institution that has ever existed. When will they repent? When will they, or will they ever, acknowledge and actively make amends for the terror Christianity has wrought, most notably and horribly against the Jewish people, the very people of whom Yeshua is a blood relative? The first step for such Christians is to stop ignoring the history, stop ignoring it, and to become aware of Christianity's history of terror. I hope to discuss the Messiah bin Yosef or Messiah bin Joseph issue elsewhere as time and the eternal creator permit. Therefore, 
When referencing Yeshua within this discussion and others, the term Messiah or Christ should be understood as referring to Messiah ben Yosef when he was here 2,000 years ago and as Messiah ben David when he returns in the near future. Now, and that's referring to part two. So as you will see within the Antichrist 2 discussion, which will immediately follow this, as you will see in the Antichrist 2 discussion, the overall evidence suggests that Yeshua was indeed warning us to beware even of those who rightly claim that he is Messiah. We discussed that earlier when we were discussing the punctuation issue. The alternate punctuation I demonstrated is much more likely to be the intended meaning of his dire prophecy. Yet, even if that was not what he was warning us about, the warning is still needed and repeated in the New Testament within the context of the discussion of the Antichrist. So, this concludes the preliminary discussion, Antichrist 1, which supports what will now be focused upon in Part 2, or Antichrist 2. And in Antichrist 2, we will discuss the true definition of Antichrist. Now, I recorded Antichrist 2 first. So if you're listening to this before Antichrist 2, you will notice in Antichrist 2 that I, I mentioned that. And that's because I wanted to get it out there first. So now, continue on to Antichrist 2. And this concludes the preliminary discussion of Antichrist, Antichrist 1. And I very much appreciate you listening. And thank you, and please go on now to an in-depth discussion of the definition of Antichrist. Thank you, and goodbye.